Section 12 of Constructive Conscious Control of the Individual by F. Matthias Alexander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 2, Chapter 5 Respiratory Mechanisms. We shall probably find the best practical illustration of the need for correct sensory experiences in guidance and control if we consider sensory appreciation in its connection with the psychomechanics of respiration. It is universally admitted that there are harmful defects in the use of the respiratory mechanisms and a corresponding deterioration in the chest capacity and mobility of the great majority of people. The scientific medical man describes certain types of children as born with a low respiratory need, and this really means that when the child is born, it is more or less imperfectly coordinated and its organism is functioning much nearer to its minimum than to its maximum capacity. This condition of inadequate vital functioning is present in the greater number of men, women and children of today, and is one that is commonly associated with what we speak of as bad breathing. For we say that a person is a bad breather, or that he breathes imperfectly. But we must remember that this so-called bad breathing is only a symptom and not a primary cause of his malcondition, for the standard of breathing depends on the standard of general coordinated use of the psychophysical mechanisms. What we ought to say, therefore, in such a case is not that a person breathes badly, but that he is badly coordinated. The truth is that when we refer to this malcoordinated condition as bad breathing, we are mistaking a general malcondition for a specific defect, and the conception of the respiratory act which makes this error possible, and which affects even our way of expressing it, provides yet another instance of the dominance of our general attitude by the end-gaining principle. This end-gaining principle is again dominant when it is decided that a person who is spoken of as a bad breather needs specific breathing exercises or lessons in breathing. We shall see that in this, as in so many other spheres, a vicious circle is developed. In the attempt to make this clear, we must give consideration to the fundamental principles upon which these breathing exercises usually called deep breathing exercises or lessons in breathing, are based. Take any book on breathing, whether written by a scientific author or by an expert in vocal or physical culture, and read the written instructions in connection with the exercises therein advocated. Take the opportunity also, when possible, to be present when the unfortunate children or adults in a gymnasium are being given a lesson in breathing or are performing their breathing exercises. You will then have proof that the whole of the processes concerned are directed towards specific and not general improvement. And though the people who are guilty of teaching breathing exercises may differ in detail of methods they all base their work alike on the same specific and gaining principle. I shall now proceed to detail the processes involved. The pupil is asked to take a deep breath. He may also be asked to perform some quote-unquote physical movement at the same time as he takes the deep breath. The idea behind this request being that the performance of the movement may help to increase the chest expansion. Yet it is a scientific fact that all quote-unquote physical tension, 
tends to cause thoracic chest rigidity and breathlessness, lack of respiratory control. Two conditions which should be avoided as far as possible by such pupils during their attempts to pass from conditions which are symptomatic of bad breathing to those which ensure satisfactory respiratory functioning. It will be necessary for the layman to watch the pupil or pupils carefully during their attempts to carry out their written or spoken instructions in connection with deep breathing. Specific defects and peculiarities to be noted during the process have already been set down in man's supreme inheritance. Here we wish to refer only to the defective general use of the psychophysical organism during these attempts. In order to make the points, we must refer to the fact that the pupil, or the teacher, or both, must have recognized certain harmful manifestations which called for some remedial procedure on the lines of deep breathing, etc. Hence the decision to employ deep breathing as a remedy. These harmful manifestations would be the result of certain incorrect psychophysical uses of the organism. This would indicate that the sensory appreciation in the sphere of guidance and control of the psychophysical mechanisms concerned must have become unreliable and defective, and in the present instance, so far as the observation of the teacher and pupil is concerned, certain defects must have been particularly noticeable in the use of the breathing mechanisms. Here we have a clear case of certain established incorrect uses of the mechanisms associated with a condition of unreliable sensory guidance and control, and any effort to remedy these incorrect uses by means of such processes as deep breathing or lessons in breathing is merely an attempt to correct a general defective condition of psychomechanics by a specific remedial process. In other words, it is an attempt to correct the imperfect uses by the performance of exercises, the guidance and direction in such performance being associated with the same imperfect sensory appreciation which was already established when the lessons began. This means that with the continued practice of the exercises, the original defects in the general use of the mechanisms will become more and more pronounced and, what is more, increase in number. It may be argued that, as a result of the lessons, the pupil's chest measurements are increased, that he quote-unquote feels better, and so on. We are quite ready to admit that this may be so, but owing to the unreliability of his sensory appreciation, what he feels is as likely as not to be a delusion. Of what avail, therefore, is it for the pupil to quote-unquote feel better, if he is still left with a defective sensory appreciation to guide him in all his activities during his waking moments as well as his sleeping hours. It is only a matter of time before the unfortunate pupil will be awakened from his dream by discovering that he has developed certain other serious conditions. I should like here to point out that these serious conditions must result sooner or later from the lack in such cases of a reliable guiding sensory appreciation, also from the lack of psychophysical coordination, which is associated therewith, and which continues to increase whilst these conditions are present. We have all known people who tell of the improvement in their chest measurement from the practice of exercises. The writer has examined many such in the course of 30 years' professional investigation. 
In the majority of these cases, the supposed increase in chest capacity has been chiefly due to muscular development on the outside of the bony chest, in other cases to some distortion or distortions cultivated during the processes involved, rather than to that coordinated use of the psychophysical system, which is associated with a real increase in the intrathoracic inner chest capacity. Footnote. An interesting delusion prevalent with teachers of breathing exercises is that of mistaking an increase in the muscle development on the outer walls of the chest for increase in intrachest thoracic capacity. And a footnote. And it is the same in the case of those who tell you that they feel better as the result of these exercises. For to the expert observer, it is obvious that the habit of sniffing, sucking in air, the contraction of the alinesi, the depression of the larynx, and all the accompanying defective use of the organism associated with the practice of the exercises must sooner or later cause serious nose, ear, eye, and throat troubles. In other words, the exponents of these breathing exercises act in direct pursuance of their end, remaining oblivious to the harmfulness of the means whereby they are attempting to bring this end about, and to the many wrong uses they are cultivating during the process. This method of procedure, as we have seen, is the very opposite of that which underlies the process of re-education, readjustment, and coordination on a conscious general basis, and we will consider the application of this process to satisfactory use of the psychophysical mechanisms. We will begin by a consideration of the fundamental psychophysical principles underlying the act of breathing. In the course of this consideration, it will be found that breathing is many times removed from the primary principle concerned, and that therefore it is incorrect and harmful to speak of teaching a person to breathe or of giving lessons in breathing or deep breathing. Such a stimulus to the subconsciously controlled person at once induces projections of all the established incorrect guiding orders associated with imperfect or inadequate breathing processes. In other words, this stimulus sets in motion all our bad habits in breathing. Breathing is that psychophysical act by means of which air is taken into and expelled from the lungs of the creature. The lungs are an extremely interesting part of our anatomy. They consist of two bags containing a network of cells capable of contraction and expansion, with air passages and blood vessels so associated and constituted that the oxygen contained in the air, when taken into the lungs, can be absorbed through the tissue of the blood vessels and cells and air passages, whilst carbonic acid gas, poison, passes from this tissue from the blood vessels into the lung cells to be expelled from the lungs. The thorax, chest, has a bony structure made up of the vertebra of the spine, the different ribs and the sternum, breastbone. Those ribs which are attached to the sternum as well as to the spine being much less mobile than those which are not attached to the sternum, the most mobile being known as floating ribs. The lungs are enclosed within the cavity of this bony thorax, of which the diaphragm is the floor, and the only entrance to which is through the trachea, windpipe. From the very first breath, 
there is a more or less constant air pressure, atmospheric pressure, within the lungs, but not any air pressure on the outside of the lungs. Air pressure is sufficient to overcome the elasticity of the tissue of the air cells and to increase their size when not held in check by the pressure of the walls of the thorax upon the lung bag itself. The lungs are subject, however, to this pressure exerted by the walls of the thorax during the contraction and to the release of this pressure during the expansion of the thoracic cavity. The pressure that can be exerted by the walls of the thorax on the outside of the lung bag is much greater than that which results from the atmospheric pressure, air pressure, within the lungs. Therefore, when we wish, as we say, to take a breath, inspiration, all we have to do is to reduce the pressure exerted upon the lungs by the chest walls and to employ those muscular coordinations which increase the intrathoracic capacity of the lungs increased chest capacity, thereby causing a partial vacuum in the lung cells of which atmospheric pressure takes advantage by increasing the size of the cells and thus the amount of air in the lungs. It then follows that if we wish to exhale breath, expiration, we merely have to increase the pressure on the lungs by contracting the walls of the thorax thereby overcoming the atmospheric pressure exerted within the lungs, and thus forcing the air out of them. It must be remembered that in all these contractions and expansions, the floor of the cavity, diaphragm, plays its part, moving upwards or downwards in sympathy with the particular adjustment of the bony thorax. Consideration of the foregoing will serve to convince the reader that if anyone desires, either by his own effort or with the help of a teacher, to secure the maximum control and development in breathing, all that he has to do is to be able to command the maximum functioning of the psychophysical mechanisms concerned with the satisfactory expansion and contraction of the walls of the thoracic chest cavity. It is not necessary for him even to think of taking a breath. As a matter of fact, it is more or less harmful to do so, when such psychophysical conditions are present, as call for re-education on a general basis. The crux of the whole matter, then, is how to gain this control in expanding and contracting the chest, as we say, and thus permanently to increase its capacity and mobility. The answer to this question calls for a comprehensive consideration of the primary, secondary, and other psychophysical factors involved. Naturally, the most potent stimulus to the use of the respiratory mechanisms is the necessity for an adequate supply of oxygen and for the elimination of carbonic acid gas, poison, from the blood. But we must not overlook the fact that in any attempt to gain for a pupil the desired control and the increased thoracic capacity, the pupil's incorrect use of the mechanisms involved is an impeding factor, and so, in attempts to correct such imperfect use, the first consideration must be to prevent the psychophysical activities which are responsible for this defective use by the development and employment of the pupil's ability to inhibit. This demands from the teacher a correct diagnosis of the pupil's numerous bad habits in connection with the act of respiration in everyday life, 
and a comprehensive understanding of the imperfections in sensory appreciation, conception, adjustment, and coordination which are manifested in these bad habits. As a result of the diagnosis, the teacher will go on to explain to the pupil why certain readjustments and improved coordinations are necessary in his case, and will then give him a reasoned consideration of the means whereby these readjustments and improved coordinations may be secured. To this end, the teacher will first name the preventive guiding orders or directions which the pupil is to give to himself in the way of inhibiting the deceptive guiding sensations concerned with the defective use of the mechanisms responsible for what we call bad habits in breathing. The teacher must make certain that the pupil remembers these guiding orders or directions in the sequence in which they are to be employed. When this has been done, the pupil may begin the practice in connection with the work of prevention. This means a series of repeated experiences on the part of the pupil in refusing to try for the end, and in positively pausing to think of the original faults pointed out by the teacher and refusing to repeat them. For instance, suppose that a pupil has a special desire to increase his chest capacity. This desire acts as a stimulus to the psychophysical processes involved, and sets in motion all the unreliable guiding and directing sensations associated with his established idea of chest expansion. The only way, then, by which he can prevent the old subconscious habits from gaining the upper hand is for him to refuse to act upon this idea. This means that as soon as the idea or desire comes to him, he definitely stops and says to himself, No, I won't do what I should like to do to increase my chest capacity, because if I do what I feel will increase it, I shall only use my mechanisms as I have used them before, and what is the good of that? I know I have been using them incorrectly up to now, else why do I need these lessons? In other words, he inhibits his desire to act. The teacher, of course, must decide when the pupil can proceed from the preventive to the next stage of his work. He must then proceed to name for the pupil the new orders in connection with the satisfactory guiding sensations concerned with the correct use of the mechanisms involved. The pupil should recall and give himself these new guiding orders, whilst the teacher, by means of his manipulation, assists him to secure the correct readjustment and coordination, the desired end, thus ensuring a series of satisfactory experiences which should be repeated until the bad habits are eradicated and the new and correct experiences replace them and become established. Repetition of these correct experiences is all that is required to establish a satisfactory use of the coordinated psychophysical mechanisms concerned, when an increase or decrease in the intrathoracic chest capacity can be secured at will, with a minimum of effort and with a mathematical precision. The increase in the intrathoracic chest capacity indicated decreases the pressure on the outside of the lung bag and causes a momentary partial vacuum in the lungs. This vacuum is promptly filled with air in consequence of the atmospheric pressure exerted upon the inside of the lung cells, and this process increases the amount of air in the lungs, constituting the act of what we call taking a breath inspiration. The marvelous efficiency of the respiratory machine, when properly employed, 
becomes apparent when we realize that we only have to continue to employ the same means whereby we secure the increase in expansion to secure the decrease contraction of the intrathoracic capacity, which means that in the process the contracting chest walls exert such increased pressure on the lungs that the air pressure within is overcome, and the air consequently expelled, this process constituting expiration the expiration and previous inspiration being the completed act of breathing. When a satisfactory coordinated use of the mechanisms concerned with the acts of inspiration and expiration is established, the teacher may then proceed to help the pupil to employ this coordinated use in connection with all vocal effort. As has been pointed out in Man's Supreme Inheritance, this should begin with whispered vocalization, preferably the vowel sound ah, as this form of vocal use, being so little employed in everyday life, is rarely associated with ordinary bad psychophysical habits in vocalization. For this reason, the teacher will begin by helping the pupil to make the expiration and a whispered ah. This calls for a knowledge of the psychophysical means whereby of the use of the organism in general, and of the acts of opening the mouth using the lips, tongue, soft palate, etc., with freedom from stress and strain of the vocal mechanisms, and to this end a definite technique is employed. The process involved prevents sniffing and sucking in air, undue depression of the larynx and undue stiffening of the muscles of the throat, vocal organs and neck. It also prevents the undue lifting of the front part of the chest during inspiration, its undue depression during expiration, and also many other defects which are developed by any imperfectly coordinated person who attempts to learn breathing or deep breathing, etc., guided by the unreliable sensory appreciation which is always associated with an imperfectly coordinated condition of the psychophysical mechanism. End of section 12